Association for the Visual Arts is the peak body protecting and promoting the professional interests of the Australian visual arts. Nava in Conversation is a series exploring the issues and challenges of working in the sector. We speak with artists, curators and administrators to gain insight into the experiences of contemporary practice and seek to propose ideas for change, progress and resilience in both local and global contexts. So before I begin, I'd like to acknowledge that we're meeting and sharing our stories on Gadigal country this morning. Um, as a visitor to these lands and waterways, I pay my deepest respects to our Gadigal elders, past, present and emerging. This place has been a meeting place for over 80,000 years before us and will be hopefully for a long time after us, although it's been pessimistic times. <laughs> Uh, my name's Georgia Mokak. I'm a proud Jugan woman from Broome. Uh, I grew up on Ngunnawal and Nambri country down in Canberra and I'm now based on Gadigal and Wongal country uh, here in Sydney. And I'm the First Nations Engagement Coordinator at the National Association for Visual Arts. Welcome back to Nava in Conversation, our monthly podcast series where we have yarns with artists and curators and organisations to discuss some of the uh, more critical issues and ideas within the arts sector. And this morning I'm yarning up with the, oh, in a beautifully soundproofed room actually to give a bit of context, <laughs> um, at UNSW Art and Design here on Gadigal Country. Um, and I'm joined by the wonderful Leulia Shraki, um, or doctor now. <laughs> oh, sorry. Thank you. I yeah, artist, curator, writer, researcher from the Samoan Archipelago um, and currently based on, oh, actually, well, we were talking yeah, about Yeah, so I, uh, thank you for having me <laughs> and I've been based for the last five months doing a lot of healing and yeah. learning and loving uh, in Narakia country in Garmalang mm. um, and up in Nightcliff, for sure, for those of you from Top End and uh, for my Samoan uh, tropical body memory it's been really amazing to be up there for the build-up and the beginning of the wet we had a almost cyclone come through and then head towards your country last week uh, and also a lot of last year and, and the rest of this year in a few months time i've been based in uh Jojage, Muniang, montreal which is uh, currently recognized as um, the territory of the Kanyangihaga nation and it's also been a meeting place for anishinaabe for abenaki for other nations as well mm. and has a really large incredible indigenous art community um, where the like French colonization and English colonization meet yeah huge yeah, <laughs> yeah you're a tricky person to keep up with yeah. and you've been incredibly busy can you tell us a little bit about um, some of your more recent projects that are upcoming or yeah so I've, I was invited early in 2019 by uh, Jose de Silva from UNSW Galleries and Michaela Tai from Forest Centre for Contemporary Asian Art to curate an exhibition of Indigenous moving image work as part of their season, One Salt Water, One Salt Water, which is across both spaces with different exhibitions that opens this weekend. And there'll be a uh, symposium I'm going to speak at as well and other pro programming. And so I've, I was looking a lot at the Sami Contemporary Art Museum, which is a 
museum performance made by a collective in the, I think they hosted it in the Northern Norway Art Museum, but it was like, so it's a, Tromsø, yeah, yeah, somewhere up there, I can't remember now, uh, and I learned about it through Office of Contemporary Art Norway, where when they ran a residency that myself and others from Australia and from uh, Taiwan and Canada, with Indigenous artists and activists from India and Bangladesh, we all took part in, in February 2018, in during the Dhaka Art Summit in Bangladesh. And uh, so, anyway, long-winded story to say that uh, now have some references for Sami art history, and was really interested in this collective creating an exhibition, which was a performance of what a museum of their art practice would look like along their own terms. So mm. I was thinking a lot about what an art museum of Indigenous moving image work from this region, the Great Ocean, and all its shores would look like, and how it would feel, and how, like how do you, I mean, to use the words that we have in English, how do you archive uh, living knowledges of bodies, how do you go behind shame, how do you uh, bring all these things together. Uh, and then, so I've, I've worked with 10 artists from who are Inuk, who are Anishinaabe, who are Yaktitu uh, Yaktitlini, who are Maori, who are Samoan, who are Nyongu uh, and Chamorro, uh, and who are all looking at language, looking at the body, and not necessarily only speaking from a queer uh, feminist intersectional perspective, but whichever perspective, looking at language loss as well. And then I really wanted to problematize, like, or to look deeply at what, um, when we're talking about Indigenous languages in the UN year of Indigenous languages last year, which is now a decade of Indigenous languages, hopefully make up for hundreds of years of devastation, um, how we also can think about visual languages as being part of that, and like motif repertoires that, so, an example, in uh, the Samoan community, there's like maybe one clan out of, I think, six historical clans who practice tattooing. And they are really hardworking. They're very kind of a dynasty, the Sulu Ape clan. And they have a lot of um, income, a lot of visibility, a lot of cultural status. But uh, in focusing on them in lots of exhibitions that are touring in Australia and Aotearoa at the moment, uh, we're not giving any space to the other families who are rebuilding their uh, capacity. And I'm friends with uh, a younger tattooist from one of the other clans who's been trained up with that, with the kind of more hegemonic one and is now like trying to reestablish his line in terms of tattooing. And so with Yuki Kihara and others, we've been looking at the different ancestors who were sent to the human zoos in Europe and what uh, what they were marked with. And some of the German ethnographic records have uh, body designs and things. So it's like you're haunted by the archive, but it's mm -hmm. also really helpful. Anyway, long-winded uh, context to say that uh, this exhibition upstairs, uh, which means the, the rain, the petrichor, the rain that's coming uh, from Manua, which is in the eastern part of the archipelago, currently under the U.S., and where... Before European colonization, we were colonized by Tonga for about six to eight hundred years, and before then, the seat of culture was in Manua. So Samoa means sacred center or all of the descendants from Manua. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, yeah. So that's been a. It's really great to work with all these artists and um, really, really amazing work. Some of the artists uh, are really key to language revival in their communities, mm -hmm. working through the archives to find land claims to see that the 
ancestors actually got the land back from the first wave of colonization, only for it to then be taken again through land grabs in California, in Quebec, uh, in New Zealand, and here. So, yeah. Um, that's one project. Yeah. <laughs> that's huge. That's yeah, that's one. <laughs> oh my gosh, it sounds like 10 in 1. And it'll be on until the 20th of April. Yeah. So, um, please come down. Yes, yeah. Oh, so it's on for a few months. That's super yeah. exciting. Now, something that I've sort of been interested in since starting this role in First Nations engagement is sort of what that means in a broader context and where things like um, building relationships and um, allowing sort of time and earlier in this yarn you mentioned healing. Yeah, just sort of navigating the pace of what it takes to build those relationships Mm. um, is something that as First Nations people is quite hard to navigate when Mm. we're uh, trying to work within the structures of existing museums and galleries and universities and other institutions. So to be able to collaborate with so many different mobs and artists on this show um, from all parts of, of this earth is pretty spectacular. Yeah, how did you find that process? And it's, I mean, to be cliche in the Indigenous art world, <laughs> it's kinship-based. Yeah. It's relational. And so three of the artists... I know well and have been building a relationship with throughout 2019 mm-hmm. in Montreal in the community there. One of them is like dating somebody in Aotearoa right now, so, you know, and another, another, and it's a relationship of, I think, uh, we're mutually learning and enriching each other, right? It's not like a Western canonical artist curator power dynamic, um, I think, because Sometimes we're co-editing each other's texts. Sometimes the other person's, you know, getting you to meet with an institution or something. It, the, the hat's always changing. Uh, and then two are really close friends of mine from Sydney, or who are based in Sydney, uh, Angela Titia and mm. uh, Amrita Happy, as well. So I had I had amongst the artists I really wanted to work with artists that I'd worked with before or simultaneously working with on other projects or in different capacities. And then artists, like, I went to the Telstra Awards last year in Garumlang and was like, oh, my God, this work is so incredible. Garutu Mi Mala by Kutingara Yunupingu. And and I was like, this is incredible. And also realizing that one of my Lakota friends was also talking about their sign language mm-hmm. and it's a kind of continuance in the plains across North America um, and how Yumu sign language Wanga has existed for a long time before Auslan has mm-hmm. existed in the, on this land. And, yeah, of course, there are other sign languages across the continent. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so thinking a lot about how to be good kin. And, uh, you know, these are lessons that we need to... Yeah, we were talking before about collegiality, and I think uh, I'm striving to be a good person. <laughs> it's always a process, right? Um, but, yeah, so it's definitely... So there are a few people that I've reached out to that I'd never worked with before, and I try to do that in most projects, but mm. also I think what maybe in the Western world would be called nepotism for in, for different local and global indigenous communities is community. <laughs> <laughs> but I haven't, uh, unlike my mom's wishes, I haven't curated my brothers into an exhibition before. <laughs> and... Just coming back to the sort of broader theme of the show upstairs, 
one salt water. Yeah. Is that, yeah? One salt water. Yeah. So it's the word and Islamic word for the Great Ocean. Yes. Yeah. For maybe some of our listeners not out there, do you mind explaining sort of relationships to water and the term the Great Ocean? Yeah, definitely. Sort of unpacking that a little bit. And uh, so it's a a season of exhibitions, solo art commissions, and then I've curated a group exhibition and there's also another group exhibition at uh, 4A. uh, And all of the whole thing was conceptualized and uh, worked on by and curated by Michaela Tai and Jose de Silva. And, uh, and as they pitched it to me, and I understand it, I was just really excited to see uh, an institution other than Quaigoma focus on the Pacific. And then uh, I had to do a little bit of convincing them that, yes, working with artists that whose territories are not the rim of the Pacific is important. And I was like, well, the relationships don't stop at the coast. Even if there's a mountain range, then you trade across, and then and all of our histories talk of you know, getting flint from five valleys over, or whatever kind of trade goods, and um, Jay traveling really far, and different technologies like that. So uh, that was really interesting, but especially in the work that I've been doing in a collective called Visit- the Visiting Curators, where we worked on the commute at the IMA in September 2018, layover at Artspace Aotearoa in March. 2019, and uh, an exhibition that we've got on currently at the Vancouver Art Gallery, Transits and Returns, um, it opened in September as well. Um, we've been working at connect, like really viewing the Great Ocean, which is a conception of the region as a fluid expanse of relationships across space and time, marked by genealogy, by trade, by ceremony, uh, and that completely is separate to, in my mind, the understanding of the Pacific as this like empty place where Asian and American and European empires wage their wars, do, do deep sea mining, do also nuclear testing, mm-hmm. uh, military, touristic colonies, that, that kind of stuff. Instead, it's a third of Earth. And of course, ocean's not no borders, but it's a neat way of conceptualizing how it's a highway of relationships. Epeli Hoofa and others have written about it being, until the arrival of European colonists, a highway of boats going all the time. And uh, I was explaining that to a journalist yesterday how <clears throat> Magellan and Cook are unimportant to all of us precisely because we have so much navigational uh, prowess in our ancestries or in our neighbors' ancestries, and we need to remember that. And in different archipelagos, they're reviving that knowledge, in others, they're not ready yet. And <clears throat> also thinking about uh, the Seven Sisters constellation being the, when it across a lot of Oceania, is the uh, marker of the beginning of the new year in the lunar calendar. And in, so in Samoa, it's called Matali'i, the eyes of the gods, and similar Hawaii, and Aotearoa, and Tahiti, Fiji, etc. So is, there's a lot of uh, connections there that can be renewed. Mm-hmm. And I think for these projects, we were really clear on trying to, like people will know that the word Pacific is, you know, it's in English, it's in French, it's in Spanish, whatever, but the conceptual place especially in Australian popular culture the Pacific doesn't exist somewhere over the horizon and I was born and grew up in Queensland and I'll always I, I get tired of um, unoccupied territories of course uh, but I get tired of like having to justify the pronunciation of my name to like Anglo Queenslanders mm. and 
people being like, oh, that's such a funny name. I was like, well, actually, no. Yeah, it's it's from like <laughs> 500 kilometers that way or 1,000 kilometers that way. It's pretty close, you know. Mm. John and Sue were maybe not so close mm. to Yui country, to Banjalan country, mm. to Yugambe, mm. Guantamoka. So, um, yeah, it's uh, interesting to think of also the, the great ocean in different conceptions is linked to ancestral deities and to ancestors or gods who did a lot of navigational prowess, Maui in Hawaii and New Zealand. So I think it's also there are these it's also a big place of, a, of possibility rather than like a place that's already cut in most maps in half. The international dateline goes through the Samoan archipelago. Mm. So if I want to talk to my relations on the American side, I talk to them from yesterday. <laughs> you know? So it's quite crazy. Or like the borders in Australia that just like cut through Yorta Yorta country or Yugambe country. So, yeah. Irrelevant lines. <laughs> yeah, totally. And how do we find words to give ourselves some pride back? Mm. Mm. And actually the key is all is in our languages. Yeah. And whether they be Creole languages like uh, Tukpisin and Bislama or uh, our indigenous languages if we have access to them. Actually, something, and this is like going super broad, like yeah. the concept of, of art. And um, uh, if anyone's out there and has found a word in an Indigenous language that encompasses the word art, then like, yeah, come at me because I haven't found anything that is a, a translation of that broad umbrella term. Mm. There are words for storytelling or more specific practices, but not sort of an umbrella term for this English word art which even people who are who only speak English and have grown up with that have trouble have def- trouble defining, defining that term which I think is part of the problem right because European languages after the enlightenment are propelled by this desire to possess to own to categorize to define without a social responsibility necessarily or kinship imperatives behind it Imperative, um, but in Samoan, handcrafted, handiwork, fine work, miasina, like divinely inspired or things made for the divine or the sublime have are one category. Performance where you become in your body is another category. And then uh, ceremonial architecture is another kind. And then uh, boat building is another kind. Mm. But what we're forgetting in all of this is the temple platforms that we used to have that the missionaries burnt down. And, uh, you know, we used to have all these villages in the interior of the islands. And only in this current generation are people kind of more openly speaking about what who were those people. Because mm. we don't even have much cultural memory of 200 years ago. And then you're like, oh, okay, in the 19, in 1918, a fifth of the population died in the influenza epidemic. Who died in the first wave? when the European diseases first arrived, or besides, you know, uh, on-purpose wars and things. So, of course, there's cultural loss because people have passed away in large numbers in short, amount, short amounts of time. But also how, like, I, I when I was starting to work in the arts, I was asking my mom, so, oh, so how, do you, how do you say artist? And she said, oh, artisti. And I was like, no, nah, that can't be right. It's <laughs> <laughs> transliteration for, like, telephone, but, like, art? Come on. Like, we've been making art forever. And I'm just like, oh, well, if you paint ink on an image looks like, is a word like this, valiata, atavali. But then, so it's, a, it's interesting because when I asked a lot of the Samoan arts workers who work at the Creative New Zealand Toya Aotearoa mm-hmm. Arts Council for a word for curator, when I was doing a PhD, they were like, oh, like people who 
hold space. And I was like, oh, that's everyone. Teolivar. Teolivar. Yeah. And it's like, okay, yeah, okay. But like, that's actually everybody in someone worldview is supposed to hold relationships and you have an argument, then you've got to clear your space and fix your relationship, your relational space again. Um, and I was like, oh, okay. And then when you talk to a few language holder, language keepers and people who work in translation often, especially who are engaged in university sector, I think, particularly Leali Ifano Albert Rafiti and also Angela Titia and Nico Patu that I worked with closely, we were able to come up with terms or to extend existing terms. So like the, dis- the territory of display of culture being an exhibition space. But rather than focusing on a transition of what an exhibition is, uh, we're looking at the display. You know, so yeah, things like that. But um, totally the suggestions and all the you know, high status someone language holders, they can decide whether that's true or not. <laughs> but I'd rather have some words coming out in our language than that are propositions than nothing. And just thinking about these ideas of display, um, you were part of a collection of essays that was published. Wait, last year was 2019, so yes. it's 2018. It's throwing yes. me off. We're in January. Yeah, totally. I think it was 2018. Yeah, um, in um, A publication titled Sovereign Words um, that was published through Norway. Yeah, Sorry. the Office of Contemporary yes. Norway with Valis in, yeah. um, in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. And it's based on a 10-day residency with Indigenous artists, arts writers, curators, and activists from communities in India and Bangladesh. It took place in Taka, and also with people from Sapmi, from Canada, Samoa, Australia, and New Zealand, and Taiwan, sorry. And so uh, we presented like works in progress, and then we just discussed and debated and got to know each other. And it's really interesting to talk about like conceptual frameworks for interpreting indigenous art in like a Canadian or Australian context with elders who are fighting to have their burial grounds respected mm. from the Santal community and the uh, and uh, Garo communities in, in Bangladesh as well. And then uh, because of the Bangladesh and Indian borders and the kind of Muslim-Hindu hatred and nationalism on both sides, uh, they're not being able to access their burial grounds or ceremonial grounds or kin on the other side of the border and then them being like animists and Christians. So that, you know, kind of, it's a really good perspective mm. to get out of my um, Monash University academic headspace <laughs> and think about uh, real challenges for a mm. lot of people. But they're not, I don't, I don't really agree with like a, art needs to save lives because if we don't, you know, there's no equivalence between medicine in a like Western medicine sense and art making. I think we need everything. Mm. The scarcity mindset is what's dangerous. Um, but yeah, so it was really an incredible experience to be there together in this way and to learn about each other. And uh, then we had six months, four months, I think, after that to uh, extend, to rewrite, uh, revise our texts. And then um, it was published in December 2018. And Yodi Yoda curator Kimberly Moulton and Métis art writer and theorist and artist uh, David Garneau and also... Bunun Nation curator uh, and writer Bjorn Ismahasan, the three of them went to Sápmi uh, in northern Norway and launched the collection there, I think, in Tromsø. And uh, with, of course, with the Office of Contemporary Norway under Katia Garcia Garcia Anton, who's a really incredible Spanish English 
director, but really focus, refocusing the Office of Contemporary Art to embed Sami and international indigenous work throughout their programming and, and publishing. So, mm. yeah, really, really special opportunity. Um, yeah, so you can buy it online. It's like 30 bucks. And yeah, it's a fantastic show. Pretty awesome. Uh, with some colleagues in Canada, we're hoping to create a similar kind of residency-based publication outcome for French-speaking Indigenous peoples. Mm. Things are in a very different state of affairs <laughs> in yeah. the French-speaking Pacific and North America. Now, something else that you've been working on um, has been in more of a... I'm trying to think of the word. Documentation's not right because you, <laughs> everything's a documentation. Um, yeah, but so you're looking at creating almost a annual report. Yeah, so I was really um, lucky to go on my first Indigenous artist residency at the BAM Centre. Salote Tawale and I uh, went, to, went there together from Australia and neither of us had been to Canada before. That was in January, February 2016. We made a lot of kin in that residency, curators, different generations, artists who we've continued to work with or to observe and celebrate from afar and who are based in New York, based in Auckland, based all over the place. And... Um, so during that residency, I was making some new textile works, writing new things, some t- essays and things. And also, it's like, oh, how do we map where Indigenous artists and curators are in institutions, like galleries, excuse me, and museums? And then also, what about academics? So we have these like Google documents that have been publicly shared on different Facebook groups. And um, there's one that we... that. Uh, few of us set up that year called How Do You Say MFA in Your Language? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty great. Uh, <laughs> and uh, particularly because in Australia, Canada and New Zealand and Hawaii, there's like a critical mass of uh, formal art school trained artists, curators, art historians coming through. And uh, obviously that has a huge, huge impact on how we conceive of art making and how we make things and how you know, write an intense artist statement, that kind of thing. Um, mm. But also, I didn't go to art school when I was 18 because I couldn't see anywhere in Australia in any art school where there was a single Pacific person. Uh, and not many Aboriginal people either who I thought, coming from the Queensland rural context that I did, who would understand where I'm coming from. And I wanted and I still want to learn more about art from my homeland, but also from other cultures. And there's still not a lot of people in all of the art schools in Australia mm-hmm. and in times of economic uh, uncertainty of course the art departments get cut first and indigenous staff get cut first anyway so this list has been updated sporadically by people online and then uh, towards the end of last year I was like okay I think I'm gonna put some money t- towards this and annually publish what I can see online for all of the indigenous staff local and global, self-identified, not me, up to me to police, um, people working in state and private art museums and galleries and archives, and then also uh, working in universities, particularly in studio arts, art history, and curatorial museum studies. Uh, performing arts is a whole other kettle of fish, and <laughs> I don't have the resources to focus, and I don't know enough. So it is like a Western disciplinary boundary but mm-hmm. just to do something. So I'm going to work with a graphic, a Cree graphic designer I've worked with before, who's really incredible, creating a typography for Cree, uh, his community, Sebastian Aubin, who's based in Montreal, 
to um, annually release like an infographic, like really sexually designed um, poster so people can map where people are in Australia, New Zealand, in Chamorro Islands, and in the Mariana Archipelago, I mean, and Hawaiian Kingdom, etc. And then also for North America. So that will come out possibly in June. Mm. First uh, kind of more cleaned up versions of that. Yeah. And with the caveat that, like, of course, there are people that I don't know about, but this is what I can see online, which right. I think is also a good measure of people being known or not. Yes. In, the, in those positions yes. and as I've I was doing a little bit of analysis on these on these uh, lists in my PhD and I was really shocked to realize that maybe a year and a half ago two years ago there were twice as many people working in art galleries and museums in Australia than in Canada but twice as many people in Canada in universities than in Australia yes. and that rate has increased even more in Canada because they've had multiple cluster hires at OCAD in Toronto, at Emily Carr and UBC in Vancouver and there's a, a cluster hire happening at Concordia in Montreal. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of different universities are putting their money where their mouth is, changing their hiring policies, mm -hmm. changing their curriculum, hiring four to six Indigenous people at the same time, including people from other global First Nations. Mm -hmm. um, in there uh, as a way of implementing the recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And I really wish that we had had that kind of commitment to rebalancing in Australia following all of the different commissions. Yeah. Cluster hiring's a relatively new concept yeah. in Australia and possibly in other countries. Yeah, I think it started sure. in the US through right. the Black Academy yeah. and a lot of folks advocating for... Yeah, not to be tokenized, to yes. be one of multiple. Yeah. So for me, I kind of, I know, I kind of define that as more than three people, because mm. if one of them's sick, then you still got two. But yes. you know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. and it's a huge responsibility huge. and expectation, especially if that organisation has never had a black or a First Nations mm -hmm. person. The amount of undoing before you can even <clears throat> begin. Yeah, and I think it's there's so much. Waspy culture has a lot of like self-congratulatory virtue signaling kind of um, social etiquette around like safe space and all these like catch catch words mm. that don't actually do they don't necessarily demonstrate cultural competency on any side. You know, I think First Nations peoples from elsewhere like myself have a lot to learn in any context and. Um, I think also as I'm getting older, realizing that the people who I maybe in my younger days would paint as the enemy are also just being chewed up by the machine of an institution. And the DNA of these institutions are for able-bodied, cis, heteronormative, Caucasian, affluent men. As the Constitution of Australia was created, as all these institutions were created, art institutions, universities were created in the late 18th century, uh, late 19th century, particularly in this country, like, they're not for us, so why do we have these, like, huge expectations of massive mm. cultural change? Mm. But there's also pay taxes. <laughs> so there's a responsibility for those places to change and mm. come with the times. Or be left behind. Yeah. And um, at the moment, the roles that you're mapping, that you're seeing online, are predominantly curatorial, director, sort of management roles? Yeah, well, uh, actually, um, there's a 
like uh, I sit on the board of the Aboriginal Kirito Collective of Canada as an Oceania mm. representative since uh, mid 2016. Mm. So, and you can do two, three-year terms. So I'm on my second one now. And anybody out there who wants to nominate the next AGM is in uh, August or September. Mm. And had a few nominations from Hawaii and Aotearoa past AGM in September. And yeah, there's it's really incredible infrastructure that doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. Uh, where it's a national and international Indigenous art service organization advocating for Indigenous artists, curators, but primarily curators and arts workers, um, working with organizations, adopting their policies, that kind of thing. And in that work, we've seen that there are no uh, gallery or museum directors who identify as Indigenous in Canada, none in Australia, none in New Zealand, and then two in, two in New Zealand. Culture them at uh, the Dallas in Wellington and Ruben Friend at Pataka in uh, Porirua, Wellington as well. Would love to see that happen here. And I think part of uh, Australian uh, development in the arts is really looking at what the Amago put up, the, the kind of strategy that was created and launched at the museum's conference last year. Oh, uh, yes. Really yes. incredible. Yeah, really, really incredible document that I've shared with colleagues in Canada mm. and read through multiple times that really uh, supports organizations. Yeah, the roadmaps. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, so it's, I think there's a lot of positivity that can also be garnered, but keeping people accountable or organizations rather, and it's somehow being able to separate the people from the organizations. But yeah, so there's, uh, I think we don't have very clear pathways for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, for Pacific or African people, mm. Asian Indigenous people, or POC in general, to enter into executive management yeah. anywhere in Australia. There are very few positions in New Zealand, but things are slowly changing, and nothing really in Canada either. John Hampton, a colleague of mine, who's co chair of uh, the ACC, was the executive director of a small regional art museum that then moved to a different community and is like one of the senior levels, uh, senior positions. But yeah, so like of one person in the last five years in Canada, talking about in places with big budgets, with capacity, of course, like a community-run cultural center or reserve-based art museum, that's something else. But I'm really kind of trying to aim at the places with money. Mm. I think that's going to be something... Hopefully, I think I think that that would be a really great place for arts organizations to aim for. Obviously, a lot of theory has been Ryan Rice, David Garneau, Julie Nagam, a lot of really incredible people, Genevieve Greaves and others mm-hmm. in Australia have been talking about having the capacity to make decisions, to have uh, to preside over budgets as the real Indigenous sovereignty <laughs> in these sorts of spaces. So I'm hopeful. Mm, something that I learned quite recently, I've only been on Gadigal Country or in, in Sydney for two years now um, and just looking at how the New South Wales government sort of creates spaces for um, identified roles. And um, I didn't realise, because uh, this is not the case in Victoria and not in ACT, I'm not sure about other states, but you actually have to apply for an exemption from the Racial Discrimination Act to um, advertise an identified role in this state, which is quite a long process and is 
obviously turning people off that. Mm. So quite often you'll see with job descriptions that they will encourage um, First Nations. <laughs> so does the applicant have to apply? No, so the, the organisation yeah. will have to apply for an exemption before they can um, take that position live in the state of New South Wales, which I think, is something I thought that it was I the same in Victoria. Yeah. Is too. it? Oh, true. Because it's always something, because it's the federal legislation, right? But I think the future includes Indigenous people in mm. the mainstream jobs. Yes. Of contemporary art, of international art. Yeah. Like uh, Geraldine Barlow is an Apui and she's mm. the senior curator for mm. international art at Kaigoma in Brisbane. Mm. I, I don't know, like I think about if I would work in a museum. I don't want to only work with Pacific people, whatever, you know, kind That's of. Right. But then also how most institutions in Australia engage with the Great Ocean is in New Zealand. Uh, indigenous population of 500,000 people in Papua New Guinea with 8 million. It's yeah. no airtime. Yeah. Or very little airtime. Yeah. Uh, and it's just not, it's not an equalised Mm. relationship and mm. representation and it's also based on race, racist hierarchies that Dumont d'Urville and others created mm. with Polynesians, Micronesians, Melanesians and everyone. Yeah, people. that's right. So it's like totally morally inept. Um, but I think we have to do better. Mm. <laughs> and in creating these uh, sort of poster reports for museum and gallery spaces, you're also doing the same for universities yes. which is <laughs> slower slower and stagnating uh, in australia for sure in canada expanding wow yeah that's so exciting. that's what i mean about the cluster hires so yes. the cluster hires there are universities there are more more jobs being created in in galleries and museums but they haven't they didn't have the same kind of um, pattern of the state art museums creating positions in the early 90s late 90s like what happened in Australia mm. instead the Canada Council ran Aboriginal curatorial residency program which in only one case out of maybe 20 or 30 positions over 10 years 15 years ended up in a permanent ongoing position so they even though the organization the host organizations were encouraged to make these roles permanent it never happened they never searched for the money they never found it or they didn't do enough work to reallocate their budgets and Canadian arts management wages are much lower than Australian mm. ones. Other than Toronto and Vancouver, it's a lot cheaper to live there. Yeah. But, yeah, so there isn't the cohort of Hedy Perkins and other folks who've already been through. There are senior Indigenous curators, of course, in Canada, but most of them haven't held a position for that long in these art museums because of the work remaining contract-based rather than becoming permanent mm. whereas in Australia we've excelled at that in a, in a way uh, but then the university sector there has really put a lot of funding towards ensuring that indigenous leadership in art history in studio practice museum cultural studies as well as many many other fields is uh, being put brought online so they have the calendar research chair positions a lot of those have been going to indigenous arts as well and then these cluster hires of like different level academics who are also artists or curators or whichever to teach in the programs and in that way to have multiple staff so that uh, people do want to come and study and yeah, have different art histories and complex perspectives yeah. enabled in those kind of classroom studio settings. Yeah. Yeah. Something that is a really exciting development at um, UTS um, is that 
um, and Uncle Michael McDaniel has been working so hard on this project, is that it will be the first university in Australia to have uh, Indigenous residents, so college residents. Oh, yes, yes, I was reading about that. hugely exciting the amount of mob that have to leave country for three, four, five years um, on top of all of the standard stresses Mm -hmm. of academia is enormous and there's just been so much research around that. Yeah, it's super exciting that that is it's a huge first for this country. Yeah, it's going to be. I know that like a lot of the app study funded block release study programs that Institute of Career Education at DKN what the will incentives to run with the graduate mm. certificate in Indigenous arts management, those kinds of programs exist around the country, but I don't think that there's ever been, um, to my knowledge either, like a real commitment to Indigenous space mm. of learning, home, kinship, yeah. creating connections, yeah. and the amount of people who... There's Warrawa College, there's other community-run colleges, but for like high school kind of time, but there's not... There's this whole piece of the puzzle in terms of infrastructure that's missing. It's, mm. Yeah, it's really incredible. Mm. Mm. It's duty of care outside of the totally. classroom. Totally. Yeah, for people to be able to you know, just have everything. Open yeah. centre, culture, food. Yeah, it's See huge. black and brown people around you. We were talking earlier about these uh, sort of trendy concepts of self-care in institutions and, um, and uh, yeah, museums and galleries and that sort of internal duty of care for the artists that are being represented in those spaces is also something that's quite lacking. Uh, It's just interesting because there's this public-facing idea of self-care that's just so... You see it everywhere and everyone's getting behind it. But um, internally, I don't know if people feel like they don't have the capacity to do that or whether they just don't have the resources like First Nations people to execute those um, sorts of realities. I think as well that... Self-care as a like often bandied about concept is more marketing spiel from capitalist colonialism where the impetus is on the individual to self-heal for continued productivity under Gregorian shame time and the working week and casualized labor and the gig economy rather than addressing structural issues like when are we going to have a real safety net in Australia? Mm. Why is it a bad thing to seek support when we pay taxes and instead we put $4 billion into Adani and other bullshit like that rather than uh, supporting the whole community? I'm really worried for, in this tangent, I'm really worried for if the whole mining economy fully collapses and I don't believe that the federal government has put money away mm. for the future of the population... What the hell are we going to do? And it's and it goes. It does include the arts, of course, in a future. Just like education spaces are important, spaces of learning of culture are important. But uh, that goes together with healthcare. That goes together with public transport, with affordable accommodation. The you know lack of response at all at the tenor of the omnicide happening currently on the Eastern Seaboard mm-hmm. in South Coast in Australia. I read something really interesting the other day about the fire. If you look at the something like the majority of the hectares that are burnt in Australia annually are actually burn-offs, controlled for cultural burning in northern and central communities that are happening where there's a more evolved framework for land rights and land stewardship 
than on the more popular southeast southwest context. Not turtle disavow the like it's incredible loss of life, human and otherwise, and habitats. And I guess for me, a way of coping with what's been happening here has been to think about, and also being removed because it's wet season up north, <laughs> so there's no lack of water. Um, but the seasons came late, it's like two months late. And it was a bit hotter in the last few months up there as in the rest of the country. You know, so um, thinking a lot about deeper time and trying to imagine what my ancestors from six generations ago, ten generations ago, what they would, what kind of advice or counsel they would provide, or even earlier, and people who have no idea what they thought and lived, to also kind of relativize the catastrophizing of our present moment. Yes, it's horrific, and we need to be responsible. But I think I think it's really unhelpful to believe that humanity has ten years left, because we've got so much atoning for as a collective species on this planet, mm-hmm. and we need to do things better. And that includes not incorporating Indigenous knowledge, centering Indigenous yeah, knowledge. Yeah, that's right. Just looking at the list of speakers or contributors to the symposium mm. that's, um, that will be part of your show, um, it's nice to see, I don't like using the word emerging because in a sort of First Nations context there's different yeah, sorts yeah. of leaders and there's quiet leadership and loud leadership and young leadership and old and um, not so sort of hierarchical. But I was really excited to see a few of the names of mm. what in the sort of Western art sector context might be seen as emerging yeah. and sort of um, centering those voices. They've really, uh, Michaela and Jose have created a beautiful Pacific kind of writing program that I think emulates a lot of the um, lessons from black writing programs in different arts festivals across Australia. And Foray is still the only organisation in Australia that supports Pacific art writing with their residency and across the region. And it's pretty crazy mm. that in 2020 there's only one, mm. considering 8 million people right just above the Torres Strait, the Northern West Papua, you know, etc. So, or East Timor as well. And, other communities around. So really excited by that. Someone, a PhD student at ANU, Mitiana Arbon, will be giving a response to my keynote. So mm. it'll be really cool too. Mm. Yeah, I think it's really, this weekend is really energizing. And I think also that it's not happening in the context of APT at Quack or other things in the major art museum is really important as well that it's in Still in really kind of institutional context, but more approachable. I know, like if this was in Melbourne, I would make sure that some of my cousins were coming, you know, like it, or in Brisbane, wherever my cousins are. So I think that's really great too, and it's free, and you know, there's, they've done a lot of work to make sure that people feel able to come. So yeah, it's yeah. going to be dope. So thanks, everybody. Thanks, Nava. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> thanks for tuning in, and um, yeah, we'll catch you later. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Head to our website visualarts.net.au for more information on NAVA's advocacy and campaigns for improving the working environment for Australian artists and arts organisations.